Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you are listening and pay respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder of Dietitian Connection and it's my pleasure and I'm very excited to have Dr. Janine Dart with us today. Janine is an advanced APD with more than 25 years experience working as a dietitian within Australia and the UK. She followed her passion for student education from the clinical setting into higher education and has been in academic roles for the last 17 years at King's College London and currently is a senior lecturer at Monash University in Melbourne. Janine has presented nationally and internationally and published research in the areas of health professional education. And Janine's primary research interests are in educational research, especially the teaching, learning and assessment of professionalism in dietetic education. And this was the focus of her doctoral research, which she completed recently. And I first became aware of Janine's work very, very recently, uh, last year at the DA conference, where you did a very um, different plenary session. And we'll we'll talk more about that today. And I just um, found it very, very interesting and would love to chat with you more. So welcome, Janine. Thank you so much, Marie, for the opportunity uh, to be uh, chatting with you today. And maybe we'll just go a little bit back in time, Janine, in terms of why you actually decided to become a dietitian. Well, uh, in my early teenage years, I had dreams, great dreams of becoming an air hostess uh, or an architect uh, and had a thing for round houses. So um, I'd actually never heard of the job uh, of being a dietitian. So it wasn't until I met a dietitian uh, that I realised that that was sort of a job that I could do. And so I did my year 10 work experience uh, at the Tamworth Hospital, so a country or regional hospital close to where I lived. And from then on, uh, I knew that it was going to be the job for me and I've really loved it. And what was it about the dietitian that you first met that made you? She was um, she was really inspiring. She had this sort of really incredible knowledge of food and cooking, which I think for me growing up in the country was something that I felt quite close to. But this kind of knowledge of, um, of of illness or or and health, sort of that sort of spectrum, I suppose, and and really very special communication skills. So I guess at that time the interest that I had, it sort of I could see that it was an integration of, of things that I was really interested in. I was the same. I knew from high school onwards I wanted to be a dietitian. <laughs> I, I was, think similarly, yeah. Yeah, really fortunate that that it was so clear. Mm. Um, but it was interesting that I made my decisions about where to go to university based on uh, the smallest um, cities. So mm. I did my science degree only two hours from the little country town where I grew up. Mm. I was too scared to go to Sydney. 
And then when it came to doing my dietetics, uh, I was fortunate to get into Brisbane and Sydney. But again, I chose Brisbane because it was less scary for me as a very mm. shy country girl mm. uh, all the way back then. So which one did you go to in, in Brisbane? There was only one at the time. Oh, yeah. uh, so I went through uh, QUT. So what yeah. year was that? Because that was the same as me. It's just ticked over 30 years since I began work. So uh, I was there in the very early 90s. Okay, I finished in 95. Yeah, a couple of years ahead of you, Marie. Yeah, yeah, I finished in 93. Yeah, how did our paths not cross before? (laughs) I don't know. And I I worked, my first job was uh, at the Nambour Hospital in Queensland. Uh, I did a locum there. But then since then, I actually haven't worked back in Queensland. I sort of headed to New South Wales. Um, I got a permanent job after that locum and went uh, went to New South Wales and have sort of headed south uh, ever since or, and overseas. Okay. So tell us a little bit about from Nambour then mm. to what led you down the research path as well in particular. I think my career has been really unplanned actually um, and if someone had said at the start of my career that I'd end up in academia, I probably wouldn't have believed them. Um, I wanted to be a renal dietitian or a sports dietitian. Um, but yeah, that first that first job being that locum, um, I guess really opened up my eyes. It was a sole position uh, at that time, and that encouraged me to apply for another sole position. Uh, in and I wanted a permanent job. I wanted to save money to go travelling, um, and so I wasn't fixed in terms of where I wanted to go. And I ended up in Forbes in central western New South Wales. Um, and it was an amazing job because I did everything from sort of the hospital work, uh, including inpatients and hospital food service, right through to sort of community nutrition talks uh, and outpatients. Um, and I ended up spending three and a half years there and learn a lot about other health professionals as well. Uh, We had a hockey team and a netball team full of um, different health professionals. So it was a really wonderful time. Um, And I ended up staying there, as I said, for three and a half years and then decided it was time to travel. So headed off to the UK and worked in locum roles for uh, 18 months or so in London and in the Channel Islands in Guernsey. And it was there that I uh, first ever sailed and I guess began to learn the love of hiking. So um, I think I'd been working then for about sort of five years or so. And then I came back to Australia. My dad was unwell and came back to Australia quite quickly and worked in Newcastle in New South Wales uh, in a clinical role at the John Hunter Hospital for four days a week. And then I, that was when I began, I first worked at the university, um, at the University of Newcastle for a day a week. And I remember really clearly at that time, Claire Collins, who of course is such a leader in our profession and so well known, she was doing her PhD at the time I was working at the John Hunter. And so she was the first ever person that introduced me uh, to this notion of doing a PhD. Um. I- yeah, and then I guess wanderlust struck me again and I had this sort of yearn to go back travelling. Um, and so I went back to the UK to do a, a locum for 12 months in gastro. Uh, and up until that time, I'd never really properly specialised. Um, I'd kept 
I'd worked in lots of different places. Um, and that locum then grew into a permanent role uh, in gastro, which became a real sort of area of specialty that I loved. Uh, and it was also at that time I had an opportunity to manage the dietetic department for three years. Uh, it was a large department of about 25 equivalent dietitians. Uh, and I also became the student training lead um, for the Oxfordshire area. Um, and and it was from there that I actually first sort of moved into academia, um, and that was at King's College in London. And they created a new job called a, a link lecturer, and that role was to bridge the practice and theory gap. Uh, and so I hadn't certainly hadn't set out to to go into ac- academia, but I remember, I remember thinking uh, as the student lead that the students, to me, weren't demonstrating enough of the humanism skills that I really valued, and I felt that they didn't have enough food knowledge, and so those two things probably um, got me to be communicating with the university staff about what they were teaching and how they were teaching. And so I remember thinking that if I wanted to influence um, the students that were coming through, that I actually really needed to step into that space. Um, so that was sort of how I stepped into working into a to the university setting. I think you've um, so much in that. I think starting in a rural area, I always encourage younger dietitians to start rurally and become generalists, and you just learn so much in in that sort of arena um, that you yeah. wouldn't get in a tertiary where you're very specialised. I really agree, Maureen. I think there's sort of probably no part of dietetic practice that I probably would be scared um, of, um, maybe paediatrics a little bit and really um, some of the more specialty areas, but I think those generalist years really helped that breadth of my skills and practice. Um, and I remember when I was sort of the manager and hearing some dietitians sort of answering the phone and saying, I oh, know, I don't know, that's not my area. And so I feel quite strongly also about supporting um, sort of diverse practice experiences and skills. And what a place to end up at King's. I feel like there's been a lot of amazing Australian dietitians that have had a tenure at King's. Um, <laughs> so Megan Rossi, Katrina Campbell, Diarrhea Linger, I'm sure there's a lot more that, I, that I'm not mentioning, but Sharon Crocksford um, also. Uh, and Sharon, I guess, that's right. And that's been a lovely thing about, uh, you know, I know that I've, I've worked in lots of different places, but for me it's been about connecting really wonderful colleagues and friendships uh, and how helpful that is even sort of, you know, not even, but how helpful that is across a career. Um, and so I stayed at King's for about 18 months and I considered doing my PhD then. Uh, I'd been working in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and was really um, interested in these areas. And so I pondered doing my PhD uh, back then, but I'd recently got engaged and I knew we were sort of talking about moving back to Australia. Uh, so that was, I married an Englishman and he could pick uh, where we lived and he picked Melbourne. So that was how I sort of ended up in Melbourne, although I didn't have any family or really any connections or work experience here. So it felt like a bit of a brave a brave move. Um, and I ended up working clinically uh, at the Alfred at the hospital there for two or three days a week and also did some private practice. Um, I'd started my private practice in Oxford 
Uh, and so I continued that uh, when I moved to Melbourne. And it was when I was working at the Alfred, I sort of, um, as a clinical teacher, I sort of became aware of the Monash program and uh, got to know the Monash Uni team. And so I moved to Monash uh, Uni to do a project when I was five months pregnant uh, to review the curriculum, uh, which I was really excited about because I'd done a qualification in teaching when I was at King's and I felt like I'd had a lot of broad dietetic practice. So sort of felt really excited by the role. Uh, And I guess I'm still here 15 years later uh, and I it's a real privilege, I feel, to be involved in people's education and to be able to, in, you know, influence or have some impact into the future of our profession. So it's a really rewarding job and it's always evolving. Um, and so, yeah, it's the longest I've ever been anywhere. Um, yeah. For a while there, I had an eight-year stint. <laughs> I've also outlasted it at Dietitian Connection so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'd been <laughs> felt like I'd been a bit of a moving stone, but yeah, Monash yeah. and and Melbourne, I've uh, been grounded here for a while. So what? Once you are at Monash, then and you you know fa- found research through seeing what Claire was doing, and obviously at Kings as well. I know they're very research oriented. What then made you decide to make the jump to PhD? to doing your PhD and tell us a little bit, little bit more about your research. Yeah, I think it was when I was working in Oxford in the gastro area that probably practice questions really began to come up for me and looking to the evidence and sort of finding gaps or so that was that was sort of the early 2000s and and so I'd pondered it as I said when I was at Kings but I really believe that doing a PhD needs to be the right time uh, in your life uh, to make it probably work, to make it work well. And so it took me uh, quite a few years after being at Monash um, to take the plunge. And I think I was probably a bit overwhelmed by the notion of doing it. Um, But I think it was being encouraged and supported by colleagues around me, Um, observing some of my friends and colleagues go through the journey and seeing the impacts they were having and how it had really helped their careers flourish. Um, I knew that I would have to do it part-time as I was a sole parent by then uh, and that I'd need to keep working. So it felt like a really big decision and I probably sat on it for a little while. Um, And for me, it was also about finding the right topic I needed something that I was really connected to and also about finding the right supervision team. Uh, And so I invested quite a lot of time in finding the right people to be part of that PhD journey with me. I always say my number one tip is pick your supervisor wisely, do your homework. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Um, And I picked my supervisors for different reasons, actually. Um, And I remember asking one of my supervisors, if she would be my supervisor earlier on, and she said, uh, no, I don't think so. It's not quite the right time for me. And I remember asking or inviting her to be on my confirmation panel. Uh, and one of the outcomes of my confirmation was that supervisor, uh, she became my supervisor. So, you know, <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So how did you decide on the topic you ended up doing? So my topic, which was professionalism, uh, 
was a topic that when I wanted to learn about how to teach it or how to to do it better, I realised that there was a big gap uh, in the dietetic literature. It had been uh, written about in medicine for a long time but I, and some of the other health professions, but I knew that there wasn't very much to guide me. And I suppose, so that was one reason. But the other thing or the other key thing was that I was experiencing uh, practice-related challenges and really wanted to try and improve that from various angles. I wanted students um, to be clear about sort of expectations and standards uh, and therefore improving the quality uh, of our graduates and, and their practice and also saw lots of missed opportunities uh, with within sort of the practice setting and the university setting that we didn't have a lot of language around um, exploring professionalism uh, and a lack of sort of tools and resources. So it was both probably from a, a literature and evidence gap and then a practice-related kind of gap that I could see that there needed to be some work um, to be done in the, in the space. Mm-hmm. So I know part of your PhD was looking at sort of some qualitative research, some interviews with students, preceptors and academic staff. Yeah. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, I I interviewed about 100 um, Australian and New Zealand yeah, new grads, practitioners, preceptors and academics, which was a lot of interviews and a lot of qualitative data. And I purposely wanted a large sample to get really broad perspectives on the topic. And I felt that if if my work or my research was going to have any influence, I wanted to try and gather as many different voices as I could. And so it sort of represented as big a sample as possible. And really, I asked the participants sort of what professionalism meant to them, um, how they understood professionalism, and, and, of course, you know, people working in different settings, I expected different responses. Uh, and then I guess I also asked them how they learnt. So whether they were a very experienced practitioner or a new grad, how did they learn about professionalism um, and how was it assessed? And so some of the students had or new grads had spoke of, sort of challenges in, in their processes And I also looked at some of the dilemmas, professionalism dilemmas and professionalism lapses that were occurring. Um, And so, yeah, so sort of asked those broad questions. And, of course, Scott, um, I learned a lot about the the profession. I learned a lot about professionalism. Um, And by asking these questions, I began to learn a lot and sort of explored the culture uh, of our profession and some of the socio-cultural factors within our profession, um, which, you know, can be really influential when a student is learning to become a dietitian, but also for those of us um, working as dietitians and how some of these factors can really influence us when we're practising. So in terms of... um... A definition of professionalism mm-hmm. did you come up I'm sure you had to come up with one for the thesis but yeah what, what did the interviews uncover for you in terms of how what people thought that meant 
Yeah, so for those 100 people that I asked that question, you know, what does professionalism mean to you? I've got nearly a 1,000 different responses. So people often had multiple things that it meant to them. Uh, you know, it might have meant respect or it meant being competent, being being good at what, what you did. And so, you know, that 974 different things that people said, um, I synthesised that down into to 23 dimensions, um, of which the most popular or the most common um, dimension of professionalism for dietitians, and it probably won't be surprising, is communication. Um, you know, that's the core tool that we have. Um, and, of course, communication meant many things, um, including sort of navigating uncertainty and complexity. Uh, so quite quite advanced things uh, within that, that definition, if you like, um, conflict resolution, uh, advocacy, et cetera. So that was the number one thing um, that dietitians viewed as, you know, what professionalism meant. Um, but also some something that was new within our profession that hadn't been picked up in in the other health professions that have been researched, and that was professionalism as emotional management or emotional intelligence might be another way to think of that. And so I found that really fascinating. And so that speaks to uh, managing our own emotions, but also sort of uh, plugging in and being able to respond and work with the emotions of other people as well. So that for me was quite a novel finding, um, yeah, within the within the data. So from a student, and then I'll ask you from the sort of the preceptor standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, are there things that you think we can do? as either students or dietitians in the profession that help foster greater professionalism? Yeah, and I, and I know sort of um, it's probably quite a contentious um, dimension of professionalism, if you like, because emotions aren't, aren't something I would say that within our profession we're totally comfortable or practised at discussing. And so I think for students, um, you know, acknowledging that their health and well-being um, is a really important part of them being professional. And at times that will be encouraging them to maybe take time out or for them prioritising their health and well-being and us having those conversations, uh, creating space in curricula uh, or if they're in the work placement setting, perhaps acknowledging that they might be feeling quite distressed by a patient experience or perhaps their anxiety um, on any given day or week, you know, might need some extra support and, and a lower workload, for example. So I think I think it's really interesting and I guess it sort of opened up a lot of conversations um, and I guess also tuning into our to our clients or our, um, you know, the people that we're working with Food's a really emotional, um, you know, thing. Can't think of another word. <laughs> Food is, a, is is really steeped in our emotions. And so being able to communicate with our clients about some of the different prompts for their eating, um, why they eat perhaps a certain food or not. So I think 
being able to to develop sort of language and, and skills around that space is actually really important. There's so much. There's so much. There's so much. Yeah, I feel that's right. I feel like I could keep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think, yeah, it's opened up conversations and I think the other outcome is that of course um taking responsibility for health and well-being as dietitians is part of our competency standards now and so building that culture of care and concern for ourselves and our colleagues and our students is actually I think a really really positive thing for our profession did you learn anything you talked about the the lapses when and I don't know what the definition of those was but is there anything that came out of that that adds to what we could look at doing differently yeah i think and this is the paper a paper that i'm working on at the moment is that some of the professionalism lapses so that's um i guess it's moving shifting the language away from someone being unprofessional so we can all be unprofessional uh and I think a really important message from my PhD is that professionalism isn't about being perfect. So professionalism is not synonymous with perfectionism. Yeah, that, that was another question I was going to ask you because we tend to be stereotyped but perfectionist and yeah. have a really high bar. So, yeah, how does that interact with professionalism? Yeah. And so I sort of I really challenge that notion and and acknowledge that every one of us can be unprofessional given, you know, pressures, um, different circumstances. So I think we need to sort of normalise that we can all have a professionalism lapse. And also it's about how we respond. So perhaps, um, you know, I might be late to a lecture and so that can look unprofessional. But actually apologising to students, um, I'll just use this as a simple example, explaining that actually I had a flat tyre, I'd left two hours before the lecture, I had a flat tyre, et cetera, et cetera, and, and sincerely apologise. Or perhaps, you know, forgetting to upload something when you've said. And so it's accepting responsibility in any circumstance when we've made an error or a lapse. So I think shifting no one is totally unprofessional. Um, it's really shifting that language from sort of a professionalism lapse or, you know, a behaviour that might not have been ideal. Um, so in terms of what the lapses are in dietetic education, uh, I'll be submitting a, a paper sort of later this year around that to, to look at that in more detail. Um, but quite different to sort of what's been published in, in medicine at the moment. I think it's back to that conversation, isn't it? So it's having the conversation around whatever happened and I think also talking about how you're feeling about whatever that situation might have been as well. Yeah, and for me that's been a really rewarding part of my PhD and by sort of developing a, a professionalism tool that that can create a bit of a, a third space for an educator and a student to have a conversation uh, and using sort of student self-assessment, encouraging them if, if they're feeling safe and supported, you know, they'll be able to identify the mishaps or or the errors they've made. Uh, it's when someone's not feeling safe and supported that they'll probably try and cover things up. 
So I think that's a really that's sort of a bit of a nugget that that if there isn't that culture of safety, um, then we won't it won't be fostering professionalism. So how do you think we build that culture of safety? I think, and, and again, that's sort of my sort of the final paper that came out of my PhD sort of spoke spoke to that, and it's really relational, Marie. I think that that we all have a role, um, no matter where we sit within the system, whether in a university as a senior person writing a course, or we're a junior preceptor, um, or a student that we all play a role in in creating the cultures that we work and learn within. And so being genuinely interested in someone um, is a really important first step. So, you know, a newcomer in your workplace, no matter who they are, you know, investing, stepping in and helping them feel seen, um, someone's interested in them. So that can be sort of that genuine curiosity and interest um, acknowledging the diversity of personalities within a work or a learning environment. Um, I acknowledge that I'm quite extroverted and, and you know, quite talkative, but I'm also really mindful that that's a very different style to some people. And so I can adapt that at times and it might be when I'm one-on-one with per- a person, you know, fostering that that interest. So if we feel seen in in our environment, we, we feel a bit more that we belong. And I think another imp- really important part is really harnessing diversity within our profession, within workplaces. We don't have to all look the same, talk the same, believe in the same thing, and building that skill in in being able to talk about diversity and, um, and respect that, I suppose. Hmm. I feel like we've got a long way to go in terms of the diversity piece um, yeah what are, yeah. You, what are your thoughts on on that and how we cope out that yeah I I agree and um I think it's it's looking at you know membership in our profession it's looking at ways of thinking in our profession it's looking at what we research and what we value uh areas that we work and I think it's sort of challenging perhaps some of the more dominant ways that have been in existence for a long time and really, uh, you know, for example, in the classroom this year uh, using sort of the findings from my PhD, you know, talking to 65 students about diversity within the profession, um, sort of talking to them about encouraging them to to be themselves, um, fostering sort of heterogeneous um, mix of, of of students and areas they want to work. So I think it's actually having explicit conversations around diversity um, and really, you know, our student cohorts really model that at a very sort of superficial level, but beginning to encourage them to be, to be themselves mm-hmm. um, and to challenge some of these notions of of homogeneity um which I guess I wrote about in one of my papers so following along from that I feel like when you see the the doctors they can debate a particular topic and have different viewpoints and then go to the because we're in Australia the pub afterwards and you know (laughs) yep and and get along but I I feel like we've struggled with that as dietitians to allow different um perspectives or viewpoints on particular 
topics. Correct. And so building building a culture of discourse, building a culture of robust conversation. Um, I had a meeting this morning with colleagues and three of us had different opinions about something and it was really rewarding to actually be able to have a hard conversation about this topic that everyone was sort of had really comprehensive knowledge in, but we could say, you know, this is my positioning, this is where I come from. And I don't think that would have happened two or three or four years ago. And so it's really important that we're able to to develop those skills and different ideas about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a and lot of that's in, in how we do that. Yeah. At DC um, we've kind of taken on Brené Brown's, um, she calls it rumbling. So we go, let's get ready to rumble and then we'll have our different She's like my professional crush, Marie. So you're, you're, yeah, and and not listening to the cheap seats. Um, you know, we're there as dietitians to improve nutrition and food outcomes for the public, and our public are incredibly diverse, no matter what country we're in. So we need to be able to connect in with the people that we're working with, and so it's it's fostering, I think reflexivity in all of us uh, as dietitians. We don't have to know everything. We can't know everything. So humility is a really important part, I think, of being able to practice well in this space, um, being curious and stepping in, um, yeah, and, and, and having, you know, interesting conversations with people, you know, tell me more about why you think that or et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're building uh, certainly sort of one of the outcomes at Monash from from my work and my colleague Julia McCartan is around having a much more critical um, curriculum. So we're actually talking about things around weight stigma, um, disordered eating, um, et cetera, et cetera, talking about intersectionality. And so actually that, and it, yeah, it's uh, a revised curriculum this year. It's been really exciting. And, um, yeah, a great outcome, I guess, from translating the PhD findings. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you did a really great job of that as well when you presented the plenary session at DA last year with the verbatim theatre performance. Um, Can you just tell me a little bit more about how that came to be and I guess what you wanted attendees to take away and then also any feedback you might have received from that? Yeah, so I guess just for the listeners, so I had all this incredible data and stories from, you know, the 100 participants and I felt really challenged when it came to writing a publication, which of course is the standard sort of output, in picking, you know, 10 or 15 quotes, which I just felt that I wasn't honouring enough of the participants' stories and perspectives and often they were quite very rich um, perspectives on on topics and sometimes contrasting views. And so I had to, I wanted to come up with a different way of shining a light on the findings and honouring more stories and more voices. And and I actually went to a verbatim theatre myself and was really moved in the audience. And so that, that came to me that this could be a way. And, of course, writing a play isn't something that I ever set out to do, but it actually was probably the most rewarding part uh, of my PhD because of probably the creativity and looking at another way of research translation 
but also the impact that it's had. Um, not everybody reads publications, and I really wanted to try and foster change uh, and growth in our profession. And so having a plenary with sort of 700 people in the audience, it it was it felt very brave. Uh, I went with the conference theme of which was, you know, be bold. But I guess the responses that I've had since then have been really profound and including a junior colleague who sort of said, I thought that I was going to have to leave the profession because I have this big creative part of me that I didn't feel that I could integrate with being a dietitian. And she said, you know, I feel that I can do that now. You've given me some courage to do that. Um, And everything to a really senior member of the profession who I've really respected, who just sort of just said thank you for being brave and and sort of sharing um, some in some some research or some evidence based approach to talking about the culture in our profession. Thank you for being brave. And so I've had numerous, you know, I've been asked to to do some to speak a couple of times, and we're actually putting it on live again here uh, as a faculty event, so to continue the conversation across different disciplines. Um, because it's been incorporated into the nursing curriculum. And I think many of the health professions have sort of said to me that you can replace dietitian and put in nurse or doctor or physiotherapist, and it has resonance. So so it it originally began as a way to honour more stories, but also to try and uh, evoke, encourage reflexivity of anyone who watched it. Because for most people, what they've said, that they can see themselves somewhere in the data. And and there's some amazing um, data of of people doing things fantastically, but also there's data that says we should really be doing things differently. Um, So I think I wanted to sort of, for the audience that observes it, to see themselves and to maybe think about how they could uh, individually do something better moving forward for the profession. I think it kind of ties back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of it creates emotion and it's the emotion that we need in order to connect to people. I know for me it was extremely powerful and I reached out to you straight afterwards. I think I think what we struggle with and, and sometimes with dealing with clients as well is we do all, we're very tend to again stereotypical left brain yeah numbers facts and it, but it's the emotion, the feelings emotion. that we need, yeah, Thinking. that we need to connect with with our clients and Australians, that, yeah. And and that's exactly Marie. Um, what I was sort of trying to to for people to connect in with and not to be afraid of it. And I think that's the beginning of being able to make change is when you can feel that discomfort, uh, as Brenna says. You know that sort of that need to rumble that you have to. You have to move forward on things. And so it it was really about airing what perhaps I'd experienced as a student, um, that there'd been anecdotal evidence along my journey in my career, but getting some research and evidence um, grounding for all of us to try and do things better um, and, you know, to connect uh, within ourselves but to be able to do that regardless of who we're working with. And I think disrupting some of the power and hierarchy that exists um, or challenging some of that um, 
because that's not very empowering, I think, for junior members of the profession or or students that are learning. Um, yeah. So thinking of that um, either student dietitian or new graduate dietitian, yeah, or, or would you encourage them to to do? So the example, the one that you said wasn't really ready to leave the profession, yeah. How do you, well, tips yeah. would, or ideas would you give to those younger? So I think that comes back to diversity, that we need diverse approaches, you know, eating food, nutrition, health, disease, they're complex, complex things. And so we can't find answers or improve things in in simplistic ways. And so so diversity of practice is a really important part. Um, it's not just the how much of of iron or calcium or fiber. It's about how in you know, the how and and the meaning of that food, etc. So I think it's it's teaching in diverse ways, it's respecting diverse ways of practice, it's the public seeing diverse dietitians, um, color, gender, size, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and us within the profession respecting our breadth of skills. Um, we have amazing skills and knowledge in so many different ways. And so us really respecting that diversity that we've got to offer within our profession um, and I think supporting a range of different professional identities as being really valid within our profession uh, and evolving identities as well. Um, so us being a bit more open, dropping that perf- perfectionism kind of mantra and being able to have kind of quality discourse with each other um, and respecting diversity. Mm-hmm. Sorry, That's... I get wound up. I get really excited. No, no. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for hours. Yeah. Um, so what's next for you then? What's post-PhD look like? Yeah, I guess so my, my day job hasn't changed at all, so I'm I'm working away, but I think I probably I feel I feel probably more empowered to to disrupt um perhaps established ways of doing things. Which um so for example, one of the research areas and teaching areas that, that I'm working on now with a colleague is around disordered eating. Uh, and eating disorders within the profession. And so, you know, it's been a bit of an elephant in the room and sort of trying to bring that out to light. Um, and so not, you know, we know uh, we d- we've done a re- published a review this year looking at the prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders. And it's really, you know, upwards of around 50% within our profession. And so being able to talk about that uh, and being able to build curricula to support students in developing positive relationships with food in their bodies rather than it sort of being this silent topic and just assuming that will happen along the way. So um, so that's a re- that's an area, area that sort of uh, I'm focused on. And then another part, um, I've received an education fellowship uh, at the uni this year, and that's really look at engaging with students as partners 
uh, in sort of teaching and, and learning and, again, sort of challenging the notion of the expert um, educator and actually really working um, and that's, yeah, so that's, they're probably two things, disordered eating and eating disorders, and then this fellowship, which is looking at increasing learner agency, really. Mm. Well, that's certainly going to keep you busy, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so just to, to end our conversation, as I said, I, I could talk to you for hours, but we do have to wrap up in a minute. Um, in terms of the biggest takeaways you'd like us as dietitians to take away from your work to date and one thing you'd like us to do? So professionalism is not perfectionism. So that's a really key takeaway to really uh, respect and enact diversity, opening our minds to maybe doing or thinking about things in a different way. And I think one thing for all of us to do is to be kind, <laughs> to be kind to the people that you work with, the students that you might be interacting with, and and being open to to growing and changing um, your practice. Mm-hmm. I think that is a fabulous way to end this conversation. Janina, I'm just... Um... Thank you for being brave. Thank you for opening the discussion. And I'm sure that it's going to have a long-lasting impact on many dietitians to follow in the years to come and um, look forward to hearing what, you know, the work that you're currently doing and, and what comes from that as well. So thank you for doing all of yeah, that amazing, really powerful work. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for the opportunity, Marie. Thank you. Uh, so thanks, so much Janine for joining us today and we look forward to everyone joining us on a future Dietitian Connection podcast. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.